At the start here, I want to first apologize to Victoria. What a way to start off with apology from the rector for not double-checking the gospel. Um, you heard next week's, so that you can still come to church next week, even though you already heard it today. The one that you see printed in your leaflet is the one assigned for today when Jesus is at the Sea of Galilee feeding 5,000 people. Now this is a familiar story, and the reason it's familiar is because it is the only miracle of Jesus that appears in all four Gospels. The only miracle of Jesus that appears in all four Gospels. It is common to see miracles appear in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So two of any three of them might share a particular story. John has some stories that the synoptics do not. John has some stories that neither Matthew nor Mark nor Luke have. They're pretty profound stories in Jesus' ministry. But this is the only miracle that is in every single gospel. Now you and I know that there must be a good reason that each gospel writer made sure to include it. Perhaps in your summer rest and visits with friends and family, you have told a story to another person across the table or across the, the patio. Perhaps you're in company with another person who lived through the same experience. And maybe you have to negotiate with that individual, or maybe that individual jumps in to add a little thing that you forgot, right? Isn't this a familiar human experience? And so likewise, we can consider the gospel writers. They told the story of Jesus' life and ministry in a way that they felt would emphasize the points they thought were most important. And it is striking that this miracle is in all four gospels, the only one. Each gospel writer thought it was imperative to include this miracle. So then it begs a question of us. What makes this story so important? I'm sure you can find books and be engaged with theologians on this conversation and, and have a great time discovering the varieties of ways that this is important. But one of the ways, and the way I want to highlight today, is that I think this story of the feeding of the 5,000 emphasizes the abundance of God. Here in this story, when there are thousands of people, and in the Gospels you'll see a little bit variation on the number, but we get the sense clearly that it is impossible for all of these people to be fed with five loaves of bread and two fish. A day of food that any one of us would consume, five loaves of bread and two fish. But in this story, thousands of people are fed from this gift. It emphasizes for us the abundance of God. We need to be reminded of this. It's hard for us to remember. Perhaps you recall that in our post-communion prayer that we've been praying for some weeks now, it begins with the words, God of abundance. This is right after we have received the bread and wine from the holy table. Then we remember that God is abundant, and with this teeny little wafer that can melt in your mouth if you leave it in there long enough, and this teeny sip of wine, if you should take it, with those two things, you are fed and satisfied to your fullest. God is abundant. 
We remember this also from John's Gospel when Jesus, who's talking about himself as the Good Shepherd, and he says at the conclusion of talking about himself as the Good Shepherd, he says, I've come that you may have life and might have it abundantly. Now, interestingly enough, that is one of the Gospels that can be chosen for a funeral. And I dare say the reason that it's often chosen is because we think of the abundant life as something we'll have later. Do we not? Here, we're scrapping things together. We're taping things, we're sewing things, we're hammering or stapling things together to make life work. But in eternity... There's where the abundance of God will be known to us. My friends, I want to invite you to consider that the abundance of God is available here and now. It is not something that you have to wait for when you take your, after you take your last breath. That the abundance of God is available to us here and now, and that's what's so radical about what Jesus is saying. I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. The resurrection was a belief, is a belief, of the Jewish people, of the Hebrew people. The resurrection is a belief that in the last days, God will raise you up in your bodily form so that you might dwell with God forever. But Jesus is saying, I have come now. I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. I want to use a couple of illustrations, both from personal experience and from science to help illustrate this point. First of all, I want to say how thankful and grateful I am to you for the sabbatical I'm anticipating. This indeed was part of my letter of agreement when I arrived, but golly, that was so far ago, and, and when we wrote all those words, this felt like it was so far away. And here we've come already to six years together, and I appreciate your anticipation and encouragement as I anticipate going away for three months. Sabbatical, by its nature, shares the word um, and its origin from, of Sabbath, holy and sacred time set apart with God. We know this word Sabbath because we talk about the Sabbath day, and Sunday has long been known as the Sabbath day, at least for Christians. And we can give many illustrations about how that has evolved in the lack of keeping Sabbath day over the generations here in this space currently. But the point of it is still the same. A sabbatical, a Sabbath time, is meant as a time to come away outside of the routine of daily living and responsibilities and to dwell in the time of God. Perhaps we think this is impossible. Maybe like we think that feeding thousands of people with five loaves and two fish is impossible. And I dare say, my friends, it is impossible for any one of us. But the abundance of God is available to each of us as we need it, where we are, in whatever our circumstances. And that includes the abundance of time. The eternity that we anticipate is here and now. We are in the midst of it. This is what the letter, the author of Ephesians, is driving home in his prayer for the church in Ephesus. He says, I pray that you might have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth 
and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The way these words are put together show us the multidimensional nature of it, right? In every direction, God's love goes on into eternity. Height and depth and breadth and length. How many dimensions are we in right now? He prays for us to have a comprehension with the saints, those that are with God here and now, in a way that brings knowledge and comprehension outside of our head but into our gut. A deep knowing so that it surpasses all understanding. We won't need our brains in order to comprehend it. It is a deeper way of knowing than what our finite minds can comprehend. I came to this discovery last week. It was only one week ago today that Michael and Gabe and I were in France and hiking on a glacier in the French Alps. I didn't know there was a glacier in the French Alps until my friend, a week before we left, told me about two decades ago when she was over there nannying for some folks and they took her to hike on a glacier. And she said, Whitney, you have to go. And I said, okay. She said, you really have to go. It was life-changing for me. You have to go. I said, okay, we will. Now, what's it called again? And she texted me the exact words because I had, I had to ask her more than once. I don't know French, and I couldn't remember what letters went together and what was to be capitalized and not to be capitalized. And so I Googled, just one week before we left, the words that she sent me. And it came up that there's a glacier in the Alps. And there's an organization you can hire to take you out there to go on it. And so I pursued the following the links, and I found that you could hike on the glacier, and they had different levels of expeditions, this, this place called Evolution 2. And um, I chose the one with two stars, not the one with four stars. And so we set out, and it gave us instructions, and Valentine emailed me about what we needed to do ahead of time, and, um, you know, just go on and pay this money and check these boxes. And, of course, there were little things you had to read, you know, I agree to, but I couldn't read them because they were in French. And I said, can you tell me what they are in English? I think I agree. So to make a long story short, each step of faith, it was an incremental steps of faith to get ready for this journey, including directions to where to rent the crampons and to rent our ice pick that we would need for this hike. These are unfamiliar tools to me. And we discovered how unfamiliar they were to us when we went to the rental store. And we said, can we put crampons on these sneakers? And they, they didn't laugh, but they almost did. And we rented the big heavy boots and the crampons and everything had to be sized to fit. And we showed up on that morning for our hike on the glacier. We had to travel up a mountain on a, on a train that went like this. And um, we got up there, and I had not ever known, like I said, that there was a glacier in France. And when we had Googled ahead of time about glaciers, I came to learn there's a glacier on every single continent. And that the melting glacier is what provides the fresh water for that area, for that continent. What a great idea! These glaciers are at least 30,000 years old, if not more. So this, this was a lot of pre-planning for the water that I'm drinking now. We scaled down a mountain that was several hundred feet. It had an iron ladder that was rooted into it in those places where you can put your rope so that uh, should you misstep, you don't fall to your death. 
When we got down to the bottom, those ro rocks that in the photos now look like gravel actually are at least as big as I am. Our group was the three of us and two French people, a father and his son, a teenager, and then our guide. And it was wonderful that the Frenchman was part of our group because our guide didn't speak as much English as we might have felt more secure in. But the father could translate and give us the necessary words, and so we set out to walk on this glacier. It was a slippery slope until you got your crampons on, and indeed there were particular instructions for how to do this, and we fell a few times. The young people, they didn't fall, but all the rest of us did. And we set out there into this beautiful landscape, hiking three and a half miles or so out and having our lunch and coming back. It was a full day's hike. And the mountains at the top were craggly and jagged, and you could tell that they hadn't had water on them. But the smooth surfaces, the glacier had gone all the way up to that originally and slowly melted away over 30,000 years at least. And I was struck by the travel in time. At one point, we were waiting to cross over this crevice where there were about 18 inches where it went down deep and fast where the water was, maybe 24-inch step that we were going to have to make. And as we stood waiting, the Frenchman who was with his son was ahead of me. And there was this huge boulder, bigger than either of us, and many people combined. And I caught him caressing it. And I said, it's so old. And he said, yes. I said, it's, it's beyond comprehension. He said, yes. This idea of eternity being in our present was demonstrated for me on this glacier. But it resonated with me because of something I read three years ago. In Lent of 2015, the brothers of the Society of St. John the Evangelist did a Lenten study on a rule of life, encouraging people to make a rule of life. This may be a foreign concept to you, perhaps you've heard about it, but it's about structuring your life in the way that gives the most freedom and enjoyment and participation and becomes a way of prayer just by its structure. They entitled their program, It's Time to Stop, Pray, Work, Play, and Love. And as we did a Lenten study this year, that year, in 2015, they had a Lenten study about how to structure a rhythm of life, a rule of life, that makes time for Sabbath rest as much as it makes time for labor, as much as it makes time for fun, as much as it makes time for relationships. And at the conclusion of this Lenten study, there was an interview with the Right Reverend Nick Nisley, who is the bishop, the Episcopal Bishop of the Diocese of Rhode Island. Now, Bishop Nisley is also a physicist. And so, Jeffrey Tristam, the uh, senior member of the order, the brothers, did an interview with him about the understanding of time. And here, Bishop Nisley, as a, physics, a physicist and a theologian, speaks to time. Bishop Nisley says, the rule of life the idea of stopping at least daily for prayer, or maybe four times a day for prayer, changes our perception of time. It changes how we experience time itself 
as well as how we experience dropping out of time. It is an objective reality. That's in contrast to a subjective reality. It's an objective reality. It isn't simply subjective, like poetic imagery, such as, it's better for me to stop if I stop for prayer. No, it's objective. Prayer changes us, like medicine. We were created and have evolved to live on the surface of this planet with its rhythms. And the surface of this planet was created and evolved by the Creator to sustain our lives. That's what I was struck with when I was standing on something that had been created at least 30,000 years ago and was intended to slowly melt away so that I could have fresh water to drink. I saw it being given generously, cascading over the sides in waterfalls. It wasn't even being meted out one little quarter cup of a sip at a time. It was being poured out for me, for us. And the thoughtfulness that this was on every single continent, it humbled me. I thought, who am I in this little speck of time? When that man was rubbing the rock, I got what he was doing. We were remembering that we're a part of this whole thing and that we're just so teeny tiny in the whole thing. It's a relief to remember that. Bishop Nisley goes on to say, when you change your time scale, it allows you to be more present to the creator who made this creation. You're living on the human scale the time scale for which you were built. Otherwise, we're living our lives at a frantic speed that doesn't allow us to function as we are meant to. We're putting the wrong gasoline in our engine, the wrong weight of oil in the oil pan. It sort of works for a while, but you know, the parts are wearing down. Bishop Nisley said, when I go on retreat and keep a different rhythm, a rhythm of prayer that is deeply connected to the rising and the setting of the sun, I find that I am more in tune with nature, and that puts me more in tune with creation. My time scale is matching creation's time scale, and the author of creation is that eternal, with a big E, that eternal that I accept as a person of faith. This means that my perception of the timeless is an actual physical thing. When your time is moving faster, the vibrations are much faster, and you are literally moving in a different time scale than the creation around you, a rock, say, or a tree. But if we are close to the same time as creation, then we are resident with creation. I think there's a deep knowing of this within ourselves. I mentioned a few weeks ago about going and spending the morning on the beach on a Sunday morning and all the people that were out there and kind of the hunger of remembering who we are in the rhythm of creation. People have told me how they pray best when they're on a hike or when they're out looking over a field or when they're working with animals. So there's something in this for us. There is a, con, um, a consistency, a resonating that's happening across all creation that we indeed recognize. Brother Tristam asks or reflects then, 
on Bishop Knisley's words. He said, so it seems that the first thing to do, Bishop, uh, this is the Brother Tristam, it seems that the first thing to do then is to get people into a new time scale, break the frantic cycle that is keeping us out of tune with the time scale of creation. Then the next thing is to help people not just be in the flow of time, but also become aware of how the eternal is breaking through to us. And this is the work of Sabbath rest, of clearing our calendars so that we place ourselves into the time of creation. We clear those things that call us, that beep us, that remind us, that keep us awake, that give us an adrenaline rush. We put all of those things aside so that we can step into the rhythm of creation the rhythm in which we were created, the rhythm which God has made and resides so that we can be changed like medicine, like medicine changes us, so that we can remember who we are. I think you know how much work this entails because perhaps you're one of those people that doesn't go on vacation very well. Or maybe you forget to go on vacation. It's a lot of work, right, to go on vacation. Who's going to receive your emails? What do you do about that project report that's in the middle of the time where you're gone? What if something comes back and they need your, your point of view on it? It's really hard to remove ourselves from the rhythm and pattern of the life that we function in, the frantic speed often in which we live. If you haven't planned a vacation yet, I encourage you to do it. Maybe, though, you need to start with a Sabbath day. If you get the hang of a Sabbath day on a weekly occurrence, then vacation will come more easily. One day in which you remove yourself from the pattern and rhythm of, the, of life. For Christians, Sunday can be a very accessible day because most people will give us credit for it, right? They'll give us a pass. If we say, well, you know, it was Sunday, then we're like, oh, okay. They won't be as upset if we didn't reply back on emails or we didn't work that afternoon. Maybe if you have a travel schedule, it's hard to make Sunday a sacred time. But I invite you to ask God's direction in this. Let God show you the way. And start with a portion of time that you will give to God and let God grow it for you. God does this, gives us each Sabbath rest. I don't think you have to be a priest in order to get it. The God that I know and that I worship and believe in doesn't dole out privileges to some and not others. The God that I know is generous. The God that I believe in is abundant. And that God gives to each as they have need no matter who they are, just where you are. But here is the thing. You have to be willing to receive it. You have to make yourself open to receive it. You have to clear away the clutter to make space for the gift to be placed in your hands, on your counter or your tabletop, on your desktop. You have to make room in order for God to put it where you can receive it. That's the job that we have as people.
but God has the gift available for each of us. Bishop Nisley speaks to this. I think that one of the key reasons the church has such a crucial role to play in reasserting moral teachings has to do with living in the eternal now. The eternal did appear and show us that there are fundamental things that we cannot comprehend by intellectual thought, but which we have to accept on faith. And these things are important. If we do not order our lives according to these, we will all die. We're going to kill each other off. The eternal did appear and show us that there are fundamental things that we cannot apprehend by intellectual thought, but which we have to accept on faith. And there is the feeding of the 5,000. It does not fit in our heads. It requires faith. And Jesus does this miracle to encourage people in their faith. Not only those that were on the hillside, which probably, like all the rest of us humans, were encouraged for a short time and then thought, oh, that must have been a freak. That must have been a freak incident that happened. Huh, I'm really glad I was there to see that. What do we need from God in order to believe? God puts it all right in front of us and asks us to accept it on faith. And I think Bishop Nisley's words are right on when he says, if we don't order our lives according to the, the belief and faith and the, and the ways in which Jesus invites us to, we will all die. We are going to kill each other off. He goes on to say, people have a choice. Are they going to live their lives at internet speed or are they going to live their lives at human speed, the speed for which we are created? Our generous God, our loving God, gives the choice to us. The God who loved us and created us out of that love doesn't yank us into how we're supposed to be, but just gives it to us a choice. It's ours to make. When the small group was planning months ago for the time that we are now entering into, the three months of my sabbatical, one person at that table said, I want this to be a time of rest for all of us. Yes, my friends, God provides a time of rest for all of us. It's for you too. I can't give you the prescription or the recipe, and God isn't going to yank you into it. But with your prayer of it growing in you, a prayer to trust God with your life, so much so that you leave your life aside and come and sit in the time of God, the eternity of God. Just that simple act, an hour on Sundays, a half an hour on either side, an hour before that, an hour after that, on up until dinner time, then you can make it till you go to bed, and all of a sudden you begin to increase in your trust in God with your very life. And you get to step into the abundance of God, the eternity of God. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and might have it abundantly. So be it. Amen.